Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. First forecasted back in 2016, we had anticipated the 200 billion by 2025. It also stands out to us that the digital economy grew 20% year on year. And the reason that stands out is that we expected things to slow down somewhat as we came out of the pandemic because we saw incredible acceleration over the last two to three years. And to see that people have returned to so-called normalcy, at least in terms of going out, shopping, visiting retail spaces. And in fact, that mobility has returned to pre-pandemic levels and oftentimes exceeded it. But yet you still see the digital economy growing 20%. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong, and every year I look forward to breaking down the most interesting aspects of the latest Economy Southeast Asia report from Google, Temasek, and Bain. With inflation and rising interest rates, what does the growth horizon look like for Southeast Asia? With me today, I have two guests, and we're going to do it in a little bit of like a panel style. Stephanie Davis, Vice President, Google Southeast Asia, and Florian Hope, partner in Bain & Company. Stephanie and Florian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Brian. And Stephanie, you have been on the show two years back to talk about the report. I think in 2020, I think there were a lot of interesting highlights then. But Florian, since it's your first time on the show, can you give a brief introduction of yourself and your role and coverage for Bain & Company? Yeah, sure, Bernard. Um, Florian, I work with Bain in Singapore. I'm a partner in the, in the firm and cover technology in Southeast Asia on my client side. I also lead Bain's digital practice in Asia Pacific and so exposed to technology trends really across the region. Uh, been a long time also of this report and very excited to be here. So this interview will be slightly different from my usual style. Usually we talk about career and then we go into the main subject of the day, but we, I think we're going to dive straight on the Economy Southeast Asia report 2022. I think Before we discuss the findings from the report this year, I actually took a look at some of the interesting numbers that came up. Um, Can any one of you first share the methodology behind the Economy Southeast Asia report that comes out every year? And usually, how are the data sources curated so that you can bring three very well-known companies, Google, Bain, and Tomasic, together in building this report together? This year's economy report is our seventh edition. The inaugural report was in 2016. And the three companies, Tomasek, Bain, and Google come together because we each, I think, have a complementary, distinct but complementary view of what may be happening around the digital economy. And you can imagine with Tomasek's insights in the funding space, Bain with their analysis and Google with its trends, coming together to triangulate the picture across the region. But oftentimes we need more than that, need to speak directly either with merchants or with consumers. And we do independent third-party research as well. And that was the case this year. So we partnered with Ipsos, who conducted 
interviews across July and August, speaking with those connected to the internet in urban and suburban areas, so we could learn a bit more about their digital adoption. But really importantly, I, I think the distinguishing factor of this report is those who choose or agree to give a lot of their time to us through interviews and in-depth conversations. This comes from industry experts, from leaders within the digital economy, and the VC funds across Southeast Asia. Without their input and the many hours of interviews, it would not be possible to complete the picture or the sizing of the digital economy. This is really interesting and important because I think the way how you all put together the data source also give the report very credible and also able to sort of give a snapshot of how Southeast Asia as a region is evolving. I think my next question is probably going to be the most straightforward one. What are the key highlights of the economy Southeast Asia report for 2022? Yeah, I will share a few thoughts here. And I know that Florian will round out anything that from, from his side of things. I think the headline for all of us was the fact that the digital economy reached 200 billion in GMV in 2022. And that stands out for us because it is three years earlier than we had uh, first forecasted back in 2016. We had anticipated the 200 billion by 2025. It also stands out to us that the digital economy grew 20% year on year. And the reason that stands out is that we expected things to slow down somewhat as we came out of the pandemic because we saw incredible acceleration over the last two to three years. And to see that people have returned to so-called normalcy, at least in terms of going out, shopping, visiting retail spaces. And in fact, that mobility has returned to pre-pandemic levels and oftentimes exceeded it, but yet you still see the digital economy growing 20%. So those are real standouts for us. And then when we look a, a bit more closely at the sectors, we do see different paths taking place in terms of, of, of growth and in some spots recovery, but they're all pointing to optimism in the long term. So to give an example here, when we look at digital financial services and the e-commerce categories, we see what we're describing as an S-curve, but it's more like an elongated S, where you can see these two sectors experience really high acceleration during the pandemic. And they're continuing to grow, but just at a lower rate, but still at impressive levels. Then we have a couple of categories, um, travel and transport, transport being ride hailing, where we're seeing a bit of a U-curve. So there was this deep decline during the pandemic for obvious reasons, and they're really digging out of that trough at impressive clips. So travel at 115% year on year and ride hailing at 43. And then lastly, with online media and food delivery, these really took off during the pandemic as well. In fact, food delivery tripled during the pandemic. So we're seeing these taking a, a bit of a, a softening year on year, and we think that they'll be returning to, to the normal trend lines within a year. So those were the standouts from the digital economy perspective, but just wanted to add a, a couple of more things to say what I just said and not acknowledge that there are macro headwinds blowing would be a bit remiss because they certainly are blowing and they have reached Southeast Asia. But what we see with this strong digital economy base that has been built is that it's setting up companies in the digital economy to be able to pivot to profitability sooner rather than later.
And then I would say the last thing that was a real highlight for us was the first time we put a big spotlight on ESG and the importance of the environment going forward and the role that we believe that it's going to play in terms of value creation, particularly on environmental sustainability as we make a run toward a digital economy of a trillion dollars in 2030. Warren, do you have anything to add on uh, in terms of the findings itself? No, I think Stephanie summarized it well. I think my, my biggest takeaway was the world isn't ending. You can easily take a lot of doom and gloom away from the headlines of the press these days. The great news is Southeast Asia actually is not as much affected as other parts of the world. And I think these recovery trends patterns, as they become clearer now, we really see very high growth rates across all sectors of the digital economy. So even if there may be some valuation dips in the, in the public markets, uh, the funding landscape is incredibly healthy. Consumer demand is keeping up and we continue to see very healthy growth rates across all these verticals. So in fact, we're still very bullish on the digital economy as you would see from our numbers for the next five to 10 years and then very much stand by our earlier prediction of this being a digital decade for Southeast Asia. Based on one of the slides I've actually read, the market coverage, I think there are five leading sectors. I think Stephanie had pointed it out. There is the e-commerce, transport and food, online travel, online media and financial services. And then there are the nascent sectors, which is mainly health tech, web tree, ed, edutech, and software as a service, or what we call SaaS. Are there any surprise learnings that come out of this year's report, other than those earlier trends, which I think Stephanie has already pointed out just now? Yeah, I, I, I want to pick out a few here. I think if I, I think of e-commerce to start with, we've been surprised by how resilient the market was, and you read the news players are really focusing on profitability, but the growth rates are actually still relatively intact. And I think it's more of a pivot away from or probably were less profitable next wave customer segments to deepening consumer engagement with established customer segments, driving up AOV, driving up water frequency for, for existing customers. And so the whole market looks still surprisingly healthy, which comes back to this elongated asset that Stephanie was mentioning. The other point, which which you sector spots was, was a little bit surprising, but in hindsight, we predicted this. Uh, it's just it just going to take some time for transport and travel to come back to full capacity. You don't just switch on and off airports. They need time to rebuild capacity, rehire staff, and get back to functional levels, which also has driven up the prices of, of travel over the last 12 months. So as it unlocks, I think we, we see a lot more potential in transport and travel in particular for now that can help back with by that. And then of the nascent sectors, I mean, the, the standout here for me would actually be not, not the one everyone talks web stream would actually be health tech. This has been a kind of really impressive run. I think it's really proven it's worse during COVID. And again, this is a behavior pattern which clearly is sticking significantly post-COVID and has a lot of potential for innovation over the coming five years. Web3 obviously being the next wave of, of innovation, but still very much in the infrastructure foundation stage, I would say. Um, so to be seeing what's coming there. So one interesting thing I thought about is as the economy report in 2016, I think they accurately predicted the Southeast Asia digital economy to reach 200 billion gross merchandise value or GMV and arrive about three years earlier than predicted. I just want to take a step back. Probably I want to understand what are the drivers and macroeconomic conditions that led to the digital economy in the region actually reaching this number much, much earlier than expected. 
if I go back a number of, of years and think about the enablers that were first outlined as that, those that would enable the digital economy to reach the 200 billion. And we talked about things that have advanced significantly in the last six, seven years, payments being one of them, incredible adoption. Also, a lot of innovation has taken place in this space. Internet access, we're at 77% penetration now, and that has certainly increased over the last several years. Uh, logistics, you know, once upon a time, it was, you know, quite challenging, particularly in the e-commerce space, but so much of that has been solved. Funding, we continue, you know, to see, at least in the VC space, impressive levels and record levels of funding for the past few years. And then consumer trust, and, and, and in consumer trust specifically, it was around using the web, making purchases. So there has been advanced progress and that has really allowed for the digital economy to thrive. But the real acceleration came actually from the pandemic and the tailwinds that it brought to digital economies around the world. And if we look at Southeast Asia specifically, we saw 100 million come online in the last three years alone. So we're at about a 460 million, again, a penetration rate of 77%. So without the tailwinds of, of the pandemic, we wouldn't quite be where we are today in terms of those having access to the internet. Also, when people were staying at home and mobility wasn't allowed across the region, we saw adoption on digital rise rapidly. We look at categories like e-commerce and those across Southeast Asia, particularly in urban areas, 94% state that they now have used e-commerce. So it was really, again, the pandemic that gave us the tailwinds to move three years earlier. We were pre-pandemic, maybe approaching it a little bit sooner than we had anticipated, but that's what got us here today in 2022. And I think it's going to play as a strength, once again, to the companies around the region who are pivoting to profitability, an active and engaged economy now. And so looking to deepen that engagement to connect in areas outside of urban centers, that's going to be more possible because of those tailwinds and the acceleration that we've seen in just the last few years. So based on the recent headwinds, for example, the US and China tensions over Taiwan Straits and the Russia-Ukraine war, will this digital economic growth in Southeast Asia be slowed as a result of less globalization? Like the, the macro headwinds are definitely having an impact here. We are not completely insulated here in Southeast Asia. We have perhaps compared to other regions felt a little bit less. If we look, for example, at GDP growth year on year, it has grown in Southeast Asia, whereas most other, most other countries have seen a decline year on year. And inflation, while it is still a very real concern here, it has been relatively less compared to other regions. But we are impacted and we will continue to be impacted so long as these macro headwinds blow. And that is impact is coming from supply chain disruptions, less product availability and, and increasing prices. Again, I would state that those aren't unique to Southeast Asia. Those are taking place globally. But as you describe it, less globalization, could that negatively impact us? Again, the macro pieces could, but I don't think I would personally label it as less globalization. I think that 
as what you're describing could actually in the short term, at least be a positive thing for Southeast Asia. Meaning as some of these regions begin to decouple some of their businesses, whether it be in manufacturing or the digital economy space, relocating here in Southeast Asia, manufacturing has been picked up in Vietnam as, as an example. Some of the digital players in other parts of the world have started at least offices or portions of their headquarters here in Singapore. So that has actually served as a positive for us in in the short term versus a negative, but it doesn't shield us from some of the larger macro headwinds. Yeah, I would very much concur with uh, with Stephanie here. I think if anything, this is probably near-term and net positive. Southeast Asia as an investment region uh, being relatively stable and kind of its own block in in many ways has only become more attractive. That's true for international capital and U.S. and Western investors, but that actually Interesting also true for Chinese investors who are moving a significant number of money here now, which again will further support growth, we think, in the digital economy space. And then there's all the macroeconomic factors that near term will probably be significant uplift to Southeast Asia. Now, midterm, that's obviously obviously very unpredictable. I think you you raise Taiwan as a fairly, fairly important scenario here, which could significantly affect Southeast Asia negatively. But we think the the current situation, if if this continues as some form of status quo and so hopefully with some easing of tensions and, and China reopening up a bit over the coming year or two. Uh, it's actually a net positive for Southeast Asia as a region. I'm going to pivot away from the macro side and just go straight into fintech. I think the digital fintech landscape is actually getting very competitive. I think in the last year, we've seen fintech and crypto or what we call Web3 companies compete for mass and unbanked customers. While I mean, you also have established banks such as DBS is fast-tracking digitalization. I guess if you were to look at a, a very interesting recent World Bank report of all 60% of the crypto adoption is in Latin, Southeast Asia, and India. And I guess Southeast Asia thinks that 20%. What are the most interesting innovations or use case examples that you have seen in the landscape? Yeah, I'm happy to take this. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure these crypto numbers are only a positive because a lot of this obviously ended up being retail speculation, where there's only a number of people who are not financially very savvy burnt their fingers. And if anything, if I had to call up kind of interesting innovation in the space and something which is really starting to change is that Southeast Asia is getting a much more efficient and customer-friendly financial services landscape. And it's sitting at this vantage point in Singapore, it's easy to forget that in Many countries around the region here, you still have interbank transfer charges, places like the Philippines even have to pay to transfer money from one region of the country to another. That doesn't affect affluent, less affluent customers much, but for mass and underbank customers make banking prohibitive and no access to banking systems uh, limits your economic growth potential. So as these customers start to become bank, you do away with, uh, with fees, which frankly, I think are uh, kind of actually a thing of the 70s and 80s in some form and shape that they exist today, you'll get more attractive access to products, same safe mutual fund ETF investments. That's only going to benefit the region. So if I had to pick out two big areas of innovations, really one more efficient and segment-tailored uh, financial services products that are accessible to all, and two, I think, much better customer service, customer experience on digital platforms than what you would have historically, where you had to rely heavily on bank work signatures and actually going to a branch. And do you think that the fintech and the crypto web three technology space is going to start converging? Given the rails for the crypto side is actually much more seamless. And also there's a lot of the adoption actually came from because of the play to earn or play and earn games coming from Philippines, Vietnam. It's a mostly jump-started adoption coming from these markets within Southeast Asia. 
Yeah, well, I would say that the whole Web3 space obviously is hugely interesting and there is a heavy link to financial services products as well. But Web3 is much wider, crypto is much wider than financial services. It just happens to be uh, singularly well-suited to a non-physical product, which is why I don't know the only traction in the financial services. But if you think about the real potential of Web3, it's rewiring the internet. And I think that's actually very exciting for sector significantly beyond fintech. If you ask me about crypto, and I think crypto always gets mixed up with cryptocurrencies in particular, and how that interface was with fintech, again, I do think smart regulation in that space is really important. A lot of the fintech players are, are facing regulation on things like lending, which makes a lot of sense if you don't want to overextend people. Similarly, you don't want them to invest in products that have significant loss potential when they don't have any money to invest in the first place. So again, this this is a space I think that will definitely have a lot of overlaps. I don't think they'll, they'll converge. They're, they're quite distinct now, but where I think regulation will become differentially important. So with the recent crypto crash, do you see that the Southeast Asia government is going to step up the regulation of fintech and crypto in the same space? Okay, well, yes, I would absolutely inspect this. I think there was just some news in, from, from Singapore today on exactly that point, regulation for retail investors. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a simple question that you should always have for financial services products. Customers have to know their loss potential, they have to be able to take the losses. And I think a responsible government will only make products accessible to consumers who can one, understand the product and two, not exposed to significant livelihood risks by buying these products. So I, I think it's it's a good move. I think it's, it's overdue. And I think the lending landscape will find similar phenomena happening. So we saw already the, the trend on BNPL regulation. Uh, again, a really valuable product, one that we think has a lot of future and potential in Southeast Asia, but something that has to be managed carefully to ensure consumers don't overextend themselves and lend too much. So I want to jump straight to one of the latest things that you have added in this year's report, which I didn't see anywhere before, which is in ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Can you talk about how Southeast Asia companies are now thinking about environment, social, and governance, labor practices, and diversity, equality, and inclusion, DEI, they call it, the issues moving forward? And I think what have you all included in this report, I think is probably of interest to the listeners out there. The Bain team has done some incredible and in-depth research here that has added a lot of value to the perspective of the digital economy. So I would love for, for Florian to go into a bit more detail. But if I maybe just uh, kick off a higher level view here, you know, your question is about how companies are thinking about ESG. And I think important thing to note this year is, is what consumers are actually thinking. And that is oftentimes the driver, of course, of what companies end up doing or should end up doing. And so consumers have spoken out and shared that they care, A, about the environment, the social impact in, in the digital economy, and then, of course, companies thinking on, on their side of things about governance. But the data shares back with us that consumers, for at least 40%, say that they want sustainability to be a part of their decision-making process. But we see a say-do gap, meaning they care about sustainability, but yet sustainability is not always a part of their actual purchase decisions. So the market share of sustainable goods, if you will, is, is quite low compared to the expressed 40%. What's really fascinating to me from some of this work that was done is that when you look at why that gap exists, a primary or the primary driver is awareness. And so what companies can do to not just build and offer sustainable goods and operate sustainably, 
but surface that awareness to to users. And I think it's a real opportunity for the digital players to actually come and think about this as value creation, not as something that they have to do or an expense or anything that's going to slow them down. That awareness that users and consumers are seeking is something that the digital economy has an advantage in highlighting when you're making a purchase in real time right there on your screen, whether it be a mobile device, laptop, et cetera, it's an opportunity to highlight and to educate along the way. And so I think in the end with consumers having the desire to to purchase more sustainably, and if we close that gap, we'll start to close what we see as a, a real issue in the region. And I think so much of this is being felt now by consumers because, you know, climate change It's been a long time discussion, of course, but it's being felt, it's being experienced. And so it seems really real to so many across the region. So once again, I think it's just an opportunity to set the digital economy apart and to bring it forward even faster. And Florian? Yeah, I'm personally most passionate, I have to say, around some of the social aspects of the digital economy in Southeast Asia and how it can help actually uplift economies. So it's been a you know, long, long passion of mine. And we put some numbers in the report this year for the first time outside of the carbon footprint on the jobs creation potential of the digital economy and, and how it really has helped merchants weather the pandemic, uh, but also helps us grow GDP across the region uh, in a more fair and diverse basis. Obviously, it has a downside. So ensuring that these jobs are fairly paid, um, ensuring the workers are well protected. These are topics that will frequently come to the fore in Southeast Asia as well. But we think what we account for is about 30 million jobs in Southeast Asia and helping in many ways, by the way, with, with very positive feedback from people who take up these jobs because it is jobs that are historically not available to them at higher salaries than they historically had. I think that's it's not trivial and makes a real difference in the emerging economies around here. And Appreciate that. So there's the other side of that coin in as countries get more developed. And in Singapore, we were kind of long deep into this debate, how you deal with kind of these driver partners on the right heading platforms or logistics delivery, how do you ensure they're well protected, um, have the right insurance. But in many of the emerging markets, that's a really big deal. And that's something we're quite excited about. I think the other interesting thing that came out from the report, and I think this is relates to more the startup and venture capital space, because I think this is also pretty significant, gets a significant coverage in the economy report almost every year. With the rising rates coming from the US Federal Reserve, so capital will be expensive and scarce. I think there's also recent challenge of startups trying to get new fresh funding, going down to bridge and down rounds. How do you see the startup landscape? I, I think we have to look at the companies in two categories. I think there is the very, very early stage companies which just started. And then there is what I call the middle to late stage pre-IPO companies. How does these two segments of startups will actually have to navigate in this sudden change of a macroeconomic environment? Let me maybe start with uh, with the point on capital. I, I would agree capital has become more expensive. I think we would not agree that capital has become scarce. I think the, the great news is we just saw over the last 12 months significant fundraising and in fact record funds being raised because of the largest VC funds in the region. There's a lot of capital now sitting on the sidelines looking for the right business models to invest in. We think that uh, supports a very healthy startup, I want to say, seed series A series ecosystem in which states is much more around the business model and getting the company started than around profitability. It does impact obviously later stage in a, in a very different way that we premium on profitable business models at later stage. Uh, exits have become very hard. So the next 12 to 18 months, it's unlikely we'll see significant exits, but it continues to 
I think be kind of very kind of accessible flow of capital into this into this market. And we believe that uh, mid to long term will also until the exit the situation pick up again. And don't foresee this as a major constraint on the landscape or anything. I think, as mentioned earlier, we talked about global other trends impacting Southeast Asia. We think there will be more capital flowing to this region over the coming years. Uh, Stephanie, do you have any thoughts on the startup ecosystem moving ahead in these challenging times? You know, it's actually in our, our conversation that we were having here and learning from my colleagues that when we look back at environments that may have been similar historically, going back, you know, to 2008 as an example, what you saw during those times is a good bit of entrepreneurialism coming forward and, and, and thriving. So in addition to, at least in the private funding space, that it continuing to look strong, it's an opportunity for there to be mindset shifts. It's an opportunity for those who may be thinking about different jobs, different business models, to really set roots in some of this new innovation possibilities on, on the horizon. So yeah, it's again, an uncertain time, um, but again, it could be a time that we could use to advance things forward. The report has also indicated a new prediction this time around is that the digital economy will reach 1 trillion GMV by 2030. So. Instead of trying to ask the question on when we will reach it, I probably want to ask the question a little bit differently. What are the conditions that will help to accelerate the growth towards that number earlier? I think one, one interesting data point I picked up from the earlier conversation is that even if something happens in the other regions, this region it seems to be growing and there will be a lot more interlocking trade within this region and that will actually grow it much better and faster as the other regions are trying to deal with their own geopolitical issues as such. Yeah, so Bernard, I'll actually start there. That may not have been the first one that I would have mentioned otherwise, but you raise a really good point. And that is consistency across the region and particularly consistency in, in regulation. So much of the opportunity that exists here in Southeast Asia is on an export basis or trade within the region, if not globally. And sometimes we have regulation that can be different when it comes to data infrastructure, et cetera, country by country. And that could actually hold the digital economy back. It could hold employment back and recovery back as well. So in order to reach that trillion dollar um, opportunity, we will we'll need regulation that is cohesive and consistent across the region. We, of course, are, are great advocates for data privacy, data security. None of that should be compromised, but governments and regulators working together will be super important. The other one and where I may have otherwise started is, is what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation is profitability. So between 2022 and 2025, there will be that accelerated shift to focusing on profitability. We have most of the publicly traded companies have come forward in the space and the e-commerce space, ride hailing, et cetera, to state that they have moved forward their plans for profitability. And so again, thinking, thinking about the fact that we have this sound base of, of users and those who have adopted digital there is a good probability of that focus coming to fruition. We then have digital inclusion. That's not something that we talked much about here in this conversation, but really important to the overall digital economy. Right now, we see connectivity and digital adoption 
being deeper in urban centers around Southeast Asia. Much less penetrated, at least in digital adoption in suburban areas, not to even mention rural. So to be able to ensure that this digital economy and the social good that Florian mentioned earlier is all lifted with equity and equality, it's going to be important that we close that divide. And that'll be a big focus between 2025 and 2030, most certainly. And lastly, we spent a bit of time talking about it, but ESG, it is something that, again, consumers are thinking about now. Companies coming forward and making a commitment. Google is a top priority of our company. We have been operating off of renewable energy completely since 2017. We have set forward the goal to be carbon-free by 2030. We need more companies to join hands in some of these commitments, and we need governments and consumers working together as well. But those would be the four things that I would posit and that we have talked about in the report as being important to be able to reach the trillion-dollar mark by 2030, if not soon after. Anything to add, Lauren, on the trillion-dollar target? You think we could get there earlier? No, I think this is a great list from that. Effective anything, I would highlight the importance of uh, consistent regulation across the region and making sure Southeast Asia can really unlock its potential as a region. I think it would be very detrimental if you've got countries going off track or starting to separate in smaller sub-markets because at the end of the day, there's benefits of trade and benefits to uplift the whole region and show we've got one consistent market for e-commerce, for goods, for data moving around mm. that will only help the economy grow and will also help unlock the potential beyond the big companies in the SME space, uh, but typically most affected by, by type regulation. I think maybe the penultimate question for me is, where are the growth regions in Southeast Asia and how should companies, whether from outside of the region or even within the region, thinking about expanding into these growing markets? Yeah, I would maybe take a few different lenses on this. I mean, if you ask me what's next on where, where market growth is coming from, there's a geographic lens. So you've got countries like Vietnam and Philippines, which have been highlighted for a while, outside of the kind of established markets, which have a lot of potential for growth over the next 10 years, both macroeconomic, but also particularly on digital penetration. Um, you have a consumer lens to this where we feel actually somewhat counterintuitively, it's probably not so much about the next 10 million consumers, it's around deepening with the first 50 million. So this is the bigger cities in Southeast Asia and really unlocking the full digital potential in those markets. And then you've got companies which are still quite far behind. So particular bigger companies tend to have come quite far in the digitalization journey. And I use the word, you know, in the widest sense, anything from mid-sized companies down tends to be less developed on actually digital adoption, digital use cases. We see a lot of potential for that space as well to to grow all the way from a few hundred employees to thousand employees down to individual merchant and small office home office type setups. And Florian highlighted where some of the faster growth is, is, is taking place, but to highlight that all of the six countries in Southeast Asia that are in the report were expecting double-digit digital economy growth for all of them. So while Vietnam and the Philippines are standout, you still you know, have Indonesia, a large market, and we expect it to continue to be the largest digital economy in the region. So I think looking across Southeast Asia, it remains an area that we're a region that we're super optimistic about in its entirety. But those two countries stand out for the reasons that Florian just described. So before I'm going to look forward to the economy report of 2023, which is next year, what are the key trends and indicators that you'll be interested to see in the next 12 months? 
for me, it's, it's, you know, on a personal basis around sustainability, but economic sustainability and then environmental sustainability, this path to profitability is, is a conversation that's been happening for a very long time, not just in Southeast Asia, but, but globally, but we've got a little bit of a forcing mechanism now, and it's going to be fascinating to watch how companies pivot in these next you know number of months and year uh, for that to, to happen. So I'll be watching the earnings calls over the next couple of quarters to see how the profitability story unfolds. And on sustainability, it's time is overdue. It's something that we should have had at the forefront, but it's here now. And I'm excited to see how both users, companies, and, and governments come together to make a difference. And we'll be watching for signs of us looking toward ESG as much of a currency as we look at GMV. Yeah, I would definitely be a plus one for, for stepping in those two topics. Seeing in particular, profitability will be interesting to see. A lot of the big platforms have significantly pulled in their profitability targets when they plan to turn profitable. That's going to be an important milestone for Southeast Asia. Now, under the hood, a lot of them are actually already profitable on a per-unit basis in various parts of the business. It's just the overall business economics haven't turned yet. So I think that's going to be a real milestone for Southeast Asia because from there, it's going to be much easier for all these players to scale and truly build out their business models. Related, I'm very curious about and closely watching is the Digibank race in, in many of the markets around the region. Indonesia obviously is running already. Singapore is now going live-ish since they're waiting for the ability to take bigger deposits for them of the digital banks. Malaysia is still to follow. And that I think will be an important yardstick of success for some of the bigger platforms as well, because a lot of capital is actually obviously flown into these digital banks. Um, so interesting to see how they carve out the market and who's going to be successful there. And then it's really also the next wave verticals. I mentioned earlier, I'm quite excited about health tech and the potential in that space. And he did mention Web3 crypto. That I actually find very interesting also because, again, it reshapes a part of the market to be oftentimes more of a global battlefield than a regional limited battlefield. But Southeast Asia definitely has some early roads there and could potentially play an outsized role beyond just the whole market here. And I think... These are very, very interesting indicators. Nothing beat the forcing function of getting profitable. So I'm going to look forward to the next year's report and hopefully we'll get you both on the show to continue to have that conversation. So uh, Stephanie, Florin, many thanks for coming on the show. And in closing, I only have two quick questions to ask you. So I will ask you for any recommendations that have inspired you recently. Maybe starting with Stephanie first. Well, I will try and pretend like I don't watch romantic period pieces while my husband is is away and that I only read intellectual material. But in all seriousness, I have just finished Nothing is Impossible by Ted Osius, former U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, where he talks about the long road to reconciliation between the United States and Vietnam and why it stands out to me uh, so much is really about the first question or one of the early questions that you asked about you know, geopolitical tensions that exist today. I don't think that any of us, any country benefits from what's transpiring. And reading through the book reminded me that it's not impossible that some of these countries could and should come together for the benefit of, of all. So that was my source of inspiration and in thinking nothing is impossible. Sorry. I'm going to be a big fan of this. I'm going to go down the romantic period drama route that Stephanie just nicely dodged away from. I've been a big Lord of the Rings fan for the longest time. And so despite the mixed feedback, I really enjoyed Rings of Power. Um, was a real highlight for me the last few weeks on Fridays. A great show, highly recommended. 
and some good twists and turns towards the end. So, And my final question, how do my audience find you? Maybe I'll start with Florian first. I'm pretty easy to find on Google, actually. So if you type my name, you will find my LinkedIn profile and you will find your mail.com. My email address is there. You can contact me on LinkedIn as well. What a great reply, Florian. Let me steal from him. I just type my name, Stephanie Davis, Google into the Google search bar and you'll find me as well. I am active on LinkedIn where I share some of the great innovations and training and skilling that Google is doing, including right here in the region on LinkedIn. So you'll be able to find me there at Stephanie Davis. And in the same spirit, you can Google this podcast and you'll be finding us on every podcast platform out there. You can definitely tweet to us and give us a five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts or even follow us on Spotify. So once again, Florian and Stephanie, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to having this conversation with Beer someday. Thank you so much, Bernard. Happy to be here, Brad.